Hello everyone, I'm Tara Boyce, recovering alcoholic, your podcast host, self-improvement junkie, JRPG nerd, and a whole bunch of other things, because in recovery, I get to choose to be more than just an alcoholic, but that wasn't the case when I was drinking. Welcome back, or just welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Addicted to Recovery, the Interactive Memoir a podcast in which I talk about recovery in regards to addiction, mental health, and, well, maybe just existential ennui. I also read sections from my memoir about my experiences, and you can leave comments or ask me questions, and I may well work those things into future episodes of the podcast, and maybe I'll ask you questions too. So, ultimately, this is a collaborative process. To get the best continuity, I would recommend you start at the beginning, but this episode does function well as a standalone. Just to be fair, this episode has some emotionally triggering content. This isn't a podcast just talking about the roses and sunshine of it all. I feel like it would be really ingenuine if I came out and said, I used to drink, now I don't, and now let's just talk about gratitude and how I'm living my best life all the time. No, don't get me wrong, I am really grateful, and I am so much better equipped to handle being alive than I used to be. But even though I don't drink anymore, I still have some demons caged up in here. And every once in a while, they get out, if I'm not vigilant. And that's exactly why I'm doing this, so we can help keep each other's demons caged up. But we also can't pretend that they're not there. I tried that. That was otherwise known as crippling alcoholism, and it didn't work out too well for me. Turns out the demons thrive on liquor, too. Who would have thought? But it turns out the demons also have quite the appetite for a kind of toxic positivity, like when I go around telling myself and others that I'm fine, I'm great, all the time, because, well, I am so much better off than I was before, and also, come on guys, I have a recovery podcast, so I have to be the poster kid for recovery, right? And see, all of this is just happening in my mind, no one's putting any pressure on me to be a certain kind of way. It's really pretty much all just my ego, which is kind of just one of the demons in disguise, because, you see, I fired the guards I had stationed outside of the demon room, because I figured I didn't need them anymore, and then, whoops, they get out, and they throw a party. It can be a hard balance to maintain, because I don't have to work as hard as I used to just to be okay, but I can't stop working altogether. Which brings me to the admittedly kind of clickbaity title of this episode. I've had to come to terms with the fact that I am an abuser. I am an abusive person. There is someone in my life that for years I've been abusing mentally, emotionally, and physically. I've neglected her, endangered her, and left her vulnerable to the abuse of other people. Beyond that, I was so convinced for much of this time that she deserved it or that I was doing it for her own good, or that I was teaching her a lesson, that I didn't recognize I was doing anything wrong. In fact, I would try to come up with new creative ways to torture and punish her if the old ways weren't doing the trick. I would have her write down all the ways she had failed that day, or just generally, 
not to motivate change, but as proof that she would never amount to anything. I would set impossible tasks for her I knew she wouldn't be able to fulfill, with a list of punishments, physical, emotional, and social, if she failed to follow through. For example, don't eat anything at all today. If you fail, you have to bind your stomach with duct tape so tight you won't be able to breathe or sit down properly. It'll rip little bits of your skin off when I finally let you peel it off a few days later. That'll teach you to be such a pig. Or, you will go to this social engagement and be perfectly poised, charm everyone in the room, and if there is even one joke that doesn't land, one failed connection, one instance of a guy you're talking to's eyes wandering, you will immediately get thoroughly plastered and sleep with an asshole you don't even like to put you in your place teach you what you actually deserve. Or maybe if nobody wants you, go lie down in that dark alley and see if anyone finds you. See if they try to help you or hurt you. See? It's like a game. Or you will write 10,000 words, practice piano, memorize some monologues, do a painting, compose a song, and you will do it all today because that's what artists do. They create art. And if you're not able to constantly create, then you are clearly not an artist. You are a fraud. Go sit in the corner. You have been tricking everyone in your life into thinking you're special. You are just a talentless nobody. See, 2 o'clock p.m. and you haven't created anything yet. Just give up already and see what fast food chains are hiring. If you can't be great, you're nothing. I would follow close behind her wherever she went, with every move she made, every change she tried to make, breathing down her neck, chanting, What do you have to offer? This? Just this? It's not enough. Try harder. What's this? That's all? This isn't even worth considering. Now try harder. Now what's this? Come on, nobody wants that. Pathetic. Try. Harder. Now what's this? Is it possible you're getting worse? Have you learned nothing? Now try. Harder. What's this? This is useless. What were you thinking? You're not even close. Now try. Harder. Hey, what are you doing? Why are you just lying there? What? Are you giving up? Get up. Get up. It's like you're not even willing to try. Why bother? What do you have to offer, anyways? It was that same voice in her ear when she told me she didn't want to drink anymore. I made sure to remind her that she was a failure. She had failed at everything else. She had failed particularly spectacularly at the task of getting sober, so... Why not just keep drinking as a consolation? Why even pretend this time will be any different? At least when you're drunk, you can dull your awareness of how useless you actually are. If this person had been a child in my care, there's no question she would have and should have been removed from me by social services, and I would have and should have gone to jail for a very long time. However, there are no laws against abusing yourself.
And yes, if you hadn't put it together, the person I was abusing was myself. Maybe you think I'm being dramatic, like, come on, everyone engages in some negative self-talk, you're not special. Oh, look, I'm doing it again. (laughs) Um, But yeah, everyone needs a good pull-up by the bootstraps, a good kick-in-the-pants mixed metaphor now and then, but, well... First of all, I never claim not to be dramatic, so there's that. But why is it that we think it's okay to say things to ourselves that we would never dream of saying to someone we cared about, or even someone we don't particularly like? Yet it's so common. Maybe it's just the sample of people I know and love who have all battled in their own respective psychological dungeons, but... Everyone I know has, at some point, said something like this to themselves. You're a failure. You're useless. You don't deserve to be loved. You're an imposter, and everyone's on to you. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're a slut. You're fat. You're disgusting. You're weak. You'll never amount to anything. You're a disappointment to everyone who loves you. Actually, maybe nobody loves you. You're pathetic. You're a loser. It's one thing to be in an abusive dynamic with another person. You can set boundaries. You can cut them out of your life. You can even move to another city to try to escape them. If it gets too out of hand, you can call the cops. You can get a restraining order, but... You can't, for better or for worse, break up with yourself or block yourself on your social media. Call your friends to rally around to prevent you from being in contact with yourself. You're stuck with yourself, so you kind of just have to figure it out. You have to cohabitate. And I have worked really, really, really hard to figure it out. And oh my god, have things ever improved, I've gone from being a full-on supervillain in my own story, authoring my own demise, self-sabotaging, self-pitying, self-persecuting, antagonist to myself, to being actually a pretty supportive ally to myself, and ugh, that is huge. But it took therapy, 12-step, Tony Robbins, stoicism, NLP, DBT, CBT, CFT, uh, Pretty much all of the T's, really. I think I've studied all of the T's. Except for maybe... (laughs) Accountability. Uh... Yeah, okay. Well, maybe not with that joke. It sounded a lot better in my head, like... Accountability? Nah, still no. Alright, so bad jokes aside... Accountability and consistency are huge in sustaining any change over time. I know that, but I sometimes drop the ball. I let things slide. It's not like anyone knows if that abusive voice comes back for a refrain. Sometimes I don't even notice. It's it's subtle. It's sneaky. Sometimes when it starts happening, I find myself making excuses for it. Just like I would for an actual abusive lover. Ah, she didn't really mean it. Mm, It's so much better than it was before. If she slips up now and then, it's only natural. 
Okay, we're going to let that one slide. I mean, when I think about it, it is kind of true. And aha. Then suddenly I find myself in agreement with that critical accusatory voice. I'm thinking, hmm, she's got a point there. When those voices in my head are echoing my insecurities. Maybe they're right. I can see it creeping into my behaviors. For example, I start overanalyzing an audition I want to do to the point where I just decide I'm not going to do it anymore because of all the reasons I've decided I'm not going to get it anyways. I'm telling casual fibs to the people in my life about how great everything is going and how busy I am because I don't want to come off as ungrateful unreliable or or weak. And I don't know how to explain that sometimes even on a day that I have no external obligations, I still feel overwhelmed. I start to become so afraid of what other people are going to think, I stop paying attention to what I'm thinking. And ironically, that makes me start to suffer socially. A few weeks ago, I went to a party and I was feeling all kinds of awkward. I get there and I started immediately regretting my choice of outfit, and I kept wandering over to people who I knew who I then found to be already in a conversation I couldn't seem to gracefully insert myself into, and there were too many people that I didn't know, and suddenly I heard that familiar voice in my head. What are you doing here? Nobody even likes you. You're just going to make a fool of yourself. And the louder these voices got, the more inept I became at actually just talking to people. So eventually I left. My critical self was just there cackling in triumph. And I responded to this by beating myself up more for having felt that way in the first place, thinking that all the work I'd done in sobriety was just a sham. I was still just this misfit reject that I'd always been. And then... A week later, I was able to get some distance and thought, Whoa, 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 come on now. Settle down there, Nelly. I mean, geez, COVID has certainly made your social gears a little rusty. And also, maybe you just don't like parties. Maybe you never did like parties, which is why you used to get so drunk to go to them in the first place. But the fact that I'd gone so quickly to, I feel a little awkward to... Everybody hates you. (laughs) It became clear to me that I had been slacking off, so to speak, on doing the things that made me get better in the first place, like focusing my thoughts and intentions at the beginning and the end of the day, or having a consistent meditation practice, going to my meetings consistently. I hadn't been reinforcing the defense at the gate of my mind, so to speak. And it's probably not the first time I use this metaphor or the last, but if I want to be healthy, in shape, physically, I can't just work out and eat well for a couple of months, then just go back to being a sedentary fast food enthusiast and expect all the positive changes I made are going to just stay there indefinitely. When it comes to things like addiction, mental health, I feel like there can be a kind of wellness-illness dichotomy that is misleading. You're using or you're sober. You're 
mentally ill or you're healthy. This takes out all of the nuance of the day-to-day upkeep required to stay on the right side of that spectrum. I, I know some people who have been sober many more years than I, and that's a huge accomplishment, of course. I'm not taking anything away from that. But beyond being abstinent, they also seem to be, well, kind of miserable and unkind. I also know a couple of people who may have a spottier sobriety record, but they're continuously re-engaging with their process and making adjustments when something goes wrong, and they don't seem to take their recovery for granted. Ideally, I'd like to have both, right? The length of sobriety and the quality of sobriety. That I don't need to go back out to reinforce why I got sober in the first place, but I keep that newcomer's mentality of vigilance and appreciation. Clearly, there are also people who have been sober a long time and they're really fulfilled, and people who are constantly relapsing and they're really miserable. But I guess my point is there is no finish line that I am ever going to arrive at. I'm never going to be done. So I am grateful to have been backed into a corner where I really had no choice. I either become implicated in a lifelong process of change or die. (laughs) But sometimes I also just wish I could be done. Like, transformation complete. I am now ready for life. Meanwhile, life continues to happen as I am preparing for it. I spend so much time preparing for life, I sometimes forget that it's happening, whether or not I'm ready. I've set all these arbitrary deadlines for when I'm going to have it all figured out, when life is going to begin. It used to be things like when I get a degree, or when I find the one, or... When someone discovered me, I had all these A Star is Born moments in my head, this fantasy that I was going to be plucked out of obscurity. Well, minus the way that story ends, it's actually pretty brutal. But as my alcoholism progressed, it just became, well, when I get sober. And that just didn't happen for years and years and years. And so I thought, well... Life is just on indefinite hold. Then when it finally started happening, I thought, okay, when I have three months of sobriety, I mean, they they have a chip for that. It must mean something. Then I got there and I was like, nah, nope, 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 not yet. I'm still way too crazy. Then six months of sobriety. But then I got there and thought, "Mm, still too soon. I need to have more of a solid foundation to build on. I need to just keep focusing on recovery, and honestly, that was valid. Then I thought, one year of sobriety. Then I will have it all figured out. And that happened, and that was in February 2020. And we all know what happened in March 2020. And a secret part of me was like, thank God. Now there's no need to have it all figured out. The world doesn't have its shit figured out, so why should I? Now this pandemic is finally, hopefully, nearing its end, and I think I'm reacting out of fear to this perception that the deadline for figuring it all out is approaching, 
or at least the deadline for not having a handy external excuse for not having it all figured out is approaching. And the fear of still feeling kind of unprepared for life is triggering a kind of emotional relapse into negative thinking because I don't know if I'm ready for the hold on life to be released or to maybe acknowledge that it had never been there at all. After all, this moment is my life. What I did yesterday was my life, and I must have been ready enough for it because it happened. And at least I'm showing up for life in whatever capacity I can. It might not be perfect, but I'm showing up for it. And I'm learning what my blind spots are, because I think I fell into the trap of thinking I had been sick, I had gotten better, and I could slack off on the things that made me get better in the first place, and I stopped being as vigilant. When I started to find some intrusive negative thoughts creeping in, I thought the solution was just to be abusive to the abusive voice, to deny it, to say, hey, shut up. We don't have those kinds of thoughts or feelings anymore. We are not on this wavelength. You do not get a seat at the table. Sit in the corner and be quiet. And the more I resisted it, the more it fought back. (laughs) And I knew better. So I started to get angry with myself for being angry about having self-critical thoughts. And you can imagine how well that worked. So what I've really been trying to do now is just pay attention when it happens. The darker side of me is still a part of me, my sort of Jungian shadow self, and it's a matter of acknowledging and having compassion for that side of me who, like it or not, will always be part of me, who in their own weird way is trying to protect me. To say, okay, um, let's hear you out. Let's have a little staff meeting in my head. What are you trying to tell me? Sometimes it's not a matter of trying to correct the thoughts, just to hear them and move on, accepting that it's just a part of me, and also realizing that I have made overall improvements. I've always found it so strange that it's so easy to be compassionate with others and so hard to do it with ourselves. I recently listened to a podcast featuring Dr. Kristen Neff, and she sort of explained why that may not be so strange, and I'll link to that in the show notes. So our survival mechanisms consist of fight or flight or freeze responses if we feel threatened. We all know this. We're most likely to harbor resentments towards people who are threatening to us, who threaten getting our needs met, or who threaten our worldviews. And it's more likely to occur with people that we can't avoid, people that we're unlikely to be able to flee. So, for example, in high school, there were plenty of people I couldn't avoid, so I hated a whole lot of people, mainly People who were prettier than me because they threatened my desire to be desired. Or I resented the popular people because 
I was jealous of the social acceptance they had and wanted to believe the system that made them popular was flawed. And of course, anyone who the guy I liked happened to like more than me, which tended to be a whole lot of people. Later in life, I really couldn't stand this one guy who called me out at work for being an alcoholic because I couldn't avoid him either and I knew he was right. I also had full-on murderous thoughts about all my ex-boyfriends, new girlfriends. I also used to spend way too much mental energy hating on the Kardashians because they represented all these values that I hated, yet were so unfathomably worshipped by society, and I also couldn't avoid them. I don't actually condemn people for their flaws. I condemn them for the way that they make me think about my own flaws, so... If a friend of mine has a tough time, let's say they flub an exam or makes a bad call romantically, I don't condemn her or have vicious thoughts about her because her missteps don't threaten me. However, when I make a mistake, I am the one threatening me. If I act against my own values, I am the one threatening my own worldviews. So we become aggressive with ourselves because we are the ones interfering with getting our own needs met as we perceive it. We are the ones who are texting that person we said we wouldn't text or failing to stand up for ourselves at work or procrastinating or otherwise just letting ourselves down. So the same fight or flight or freeze instinct arises. And so my go-to was always flight, escape. And, well, you know how that worked out. Years and years of alcoholic misery. The romantic obsessions were a big part of my desire to flee myself as well. And then there's freeze. I get stuck. I am paralyzed. I do nothing. This is also ineffective because it just promotes more accusatory self-talk. So then we come to fight. I berate myself, I try to shame myself into changing. I wound myself and then wonder why I'm not running faster. Self-compassion does not come naturally to me, but I realize nobody ever shamed me into sobriety. I had to believe I was worth saving flaws and all, and what I require is kindness, not condemnation. So, one of the tools I've been using is comparison. I know people say never compare, and people also say a kind of self-help trope is not to compare yourself to other people, but compare yourself to who you were yesterday, and that's all well and good, but what if I had a really great day yesterday? <laughs> what if I was at the top of my game yesterday and didn't make a single misstep? I don't necessarily always want to compare myself to that person. Like I said, mental health is a kind of spectrum with peaks and valleys, so... I would rather compare myself to the person I was at my worst. Compare myself to a person that I used to be, and I don't think I am anymore. So even if I can't dazzle others and myself every day, at least I know I'm not back there. There is a whole buffet of humiliations and devastations I can draw upon, but for some reason, if I'm beating myself up about not getting enough done... I think about this one time, about a month 
before I got sober, when for several weeks I was incapable of summing up the fortitude to water plants. This was actually going to be part of a chapter towards the end of the book, but here you go, you're getting it now. Shortly before the last time I had to go to treatment, my parents spent a month in Australia following the birth of my nephew. I managed to take this personally. How dare my sister go have a baby out in Australia, and my family deciding to go and be with her, thus not being around to take care of me when I was in crisis. And to be fair, I was kind of always in crisis. I was a wreck. So they knew not to expect much from me in terms of housekeeping. Don't burn the house down and water the plants. The small amount of accountability I had from their presence when I wasn't hiding out at my boyfriend's house was removed, so when I was home, I just lay in bed, drinking, sometimes crying. You know, that kind of sexy alcoholism. It was my worst bottom, not in the sense that anything particularly scary or dangerous was happening, but because I'd kind of just given up. I wasn't attempting to stop or moderate or get drunk or do anything. I was just drinking and waiting for the day to end. I'd get up, drink until I was stable enough to walk, make the trek to the SAQ, get vodka, and return to bed, drift in and out of a feverish half-sleep Watch online Miss Mojo videos on YouTube about the best couples in teen dramas and get surprisingly emotional if I disagreed with their choices. Like, come on, how could you rate Angel and Buffy over Damon and Elena from the Vampire Diaries? Damon did everything for Elena. He really changed. She changed. They were better for having each other. And if you're Gonna get on about Buffy. How about Spike and Buffy? So much better than Angel and Buffy. He went and got a soul for her. He brought her out of her darkest periods. What did Angel do? Brood off into the darkness and get his own show, that's what. Then I'd cry some more. (laughs) I'm no shrink, but I think it actually wasn't about on-screen vampire romances. About two weeks into their trip, I woke up in a panic. I had completely forgotten about the plants. I imagined all fifty or so of my mother's eclectic and theretofore well-attended greenery was as assuredly beyond redemption as I believed myself to be. The anxiety and accompanying waves of shame and defeat were such that I couldn't summon the wherewithal to get out of bed and verify the situation. The voices in my head repeated sound bits of self-condemnation, What kind of a person can't remember to water her mom's plants? It was the only thing you had to remember to do. Just get up and water the plants. Now, you fat, lazy bitch. But you won't even be able to handle it if all the plants are dead. You don't have enough liquor to get through the night if you see that all the plants are dead. I can't do it. Ugh, you revolting coward. You know. Garden variety self-abasement pun intended. After a few more hours of sweats and sort of sleep, I clambered down to the main level to observe that the plants did not appear to have met their arid annihilation, but 
I wasn't able to water them straight away, oh no, as I was out of liquor, but I resolved to do so the moment I returned from, uh, whatever other things I pretended to do along with getting more alcohol. Bumbling back some hours later, I was barely able to make it from the front steps to my bed before collapsing completely, winter coat still on. My tolerance had become unpredictable, sometimes as high as my usual 750 milliliters of vodka a day, and sometimes by the third drink I could feel my body starting to shut down and say, No. Lying in bed, I had spinning thoughts of succumbing spider lilies, perishing peonies, yellow and parched, languishing as I lay unable to mobilize. The body won the battle over the brain, paralyzing me to my sheets, bottle tucked under my pillow, waiting to feel stable enough to transport a jug of water back and forth. But it did not happen, not that day, or the next, or the next. About a week later, I finally found the mustard to water about half of them, forgetting the ones in the basement and the other rooms I didn't frequent. The plants actually survived, but only because they had hired someone to come over and water them, probably knowing I couldn't be counted on for anything. So, sure, sometimes I let myself down. But I sure as hell am not that person who cannot be counted on for anything anymore. So, what about you? What do you got? I'm fairly certain there are some dark days of the soul that you can summon to feel a heck of a lot better about where you happen to be today. This little exercise is a modified version of something I learned from Stoicism, a Greek philosophy, where they promote the idea of comparing yourself to all the bad things that could be happening to you, but aren't. I just find it resonates a little more when I imagine bad things that actually have happened to me, or that I actually have done, and suddenly feel relieved that I am no longer doing those things, and that those things are no longer happening to me. I hope this episode has been helpful to you in some way. It might have seemed a little all over the place, but I was hoping to create a picture of what a sort of abusive dynamic with your own mind sounds like, and that if you do that same sort of thing, maybe you can feel a little less alone, and maybe try to give yourself a break, and do whatever you can to break the cycle, and one of the best things for me is just talking it through with someone, and as usual, I'm going to link to some recovery communities in the show notes, so hopefully you have someone to talk to. I may be off base here, but my intuition is that if you're listening to a podcast about recovery, then you've probably already done some work on yourself and you probably have a lot of things to be proud of. So take a moment to acknowledge that. And don't let anyone take that away from you, including and especially yourself. So as usual, you can leave me your questions or comments or hate mail. <laughs> hopefully not hate mail, see my brain's at it again, at interactivememoir at gmail.com. You can also join the Facebook group, which is the name of this podcast, and I'll leave all that info in the show notes. Also, this podcast is brought to you by me, Terra Boyce voice actor. 
I'm guessing if you could tolerate listening to me for a whole 35 minutes, then you might be able to think of somewhere else you'd like to hear my voice. Or maybe this voice. Or maybe this voice. Or maybe this voice. Actually, no, nobody likes that one. You can find me at taraboyce.com or any of the other ways I already listed you can reach me for the podcast. Next episode, we'll be diving deeper into despair as my alcoholism progresses into my 20s. I can't wait to tell you all about it. In the meantime, be kind to yourself, because you have so much more to offer the world than you even know. (laughs) 